Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Hello, Sam. Dick Pants. That is the character played by John Oliver in the classic film The Love Guru. And many have said that is the highlight of John Oliver's career. He'd never reached you know, such a pinnacle of uh, respect and adulation again. I think he was in Smurfs, The Lost Village, but I'm not sure what his I take character is called. <laughs> Whatever random character he may or may not have played in Smurfs, The Lost Village, it was that is usually yeah. cited as the uh, peak of John Oliver's career so far. But he might just have bested himself. He appeared in... Uh, uh, what was he doing? Some some stage. <laughs> there was thing. a twentieth you know. anniversary <laughs> screening of Wag the Dog, which is this David Mamet scripted film all about the, right. uh, a satire where the president has been caught with his pants down, and to deflect the media attention, they invent a a war with Albania, and it's all about the satire of Hollywood, and they hire a Hollywood producer, a bit Argo esque in a way, played by Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro is like this Hollywood fixer and like together they orchestrate a fake global catastrophe in order to save the president's reputation and there's a 20th anniversary screening and during the Q&A John Oliver brought up Dustin Hoffman's recent sexual assault allegations which we've discussed in the program where on the set of this movie made in the mid 80s he was very leery towards this young female intern softball clitoris was a phrase tossed around yeah grabbed her ass made lewd remarks and generally made her feel incredibly uncomfortable and she wrote sort of expose about it recently and Oliver took him to task about him in a way which was very admirable it was actually quite a cool moment and uh, he kind of wouldn't let it go and I was reading the article about it because I didn't see a clip of the whole thing there was about a four minute clip of them talking uh, which has just been filmed from the audience. But the way that the article was describing it sounded like it basically took over the whole Q&A and that John Oliver, it was saying that John Oliver kept trying to move on and then Dustin Hoffman would bring it up again because he was so pissed off about it. Yeah. And they had these increasingly like tetchy, sort of spiky exchanges um, where they were slightly rude to each other. Yeah, I mean, like, John Oliver's like a professional comedian and Dustin Hoffman's like just this old man. Don't try it, Dustin. <laughs> so... I feel like in their sort of battle wits, he's got the edge. But yeah, it was just, John Oliver was just making a lot of smart points and Dustin's responses were like pretty terrible. They were terrible. And what was so interesting about it is that... And he was unaware of how terrible they exa- were. Exactly, yeah. But it was somebody who's been accused of one of these things. I mean, in the sort of grand scheme of the accusations, like it's not as serious as some of the others. But I guess it's the level of seriousness where, you know, he can still appear in public events and w- is willing to discuss them and defend himself. And it was an unusual. It was unusual to see it so forthrightly debated in a public way, you know, rather than just an exchange of press releases and you know pre-written statements and apologies. And you really kind of got to see Dustin Hoffman's attitude towards the issue. You know, he yeah. really expounded quite a lot about it, and he just does not 
present himself in a good light. It's this kind of combination of, uh, well, things were different back then. Also, it was a long time ago. Also, it didn't really happen the way, you know, she said. And also, I didn't really remember who it was. And, you know. Yeah. It was just this this litany it's of, It's not like, a big deal. Whatever it was, I'm sorry. But, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all bullshit. these sort of really lame-sounding excuses. And, uh, yeah, he just comes across terribly. And yeah. There, there was even a bit of, like, audience involvement, like... There was some people yelling things like, thank you for believing women to John Oliver. And then someone else was yelling at him to like move on or something. And then they were shouted down by a different member of the audience. I want to hear about the making of Wag the Dog, that film nobody has thought about. Um, I just feel like <laughs> ever, perhaps. Yeah, well, I guess that those those are like the global wag the dog super fans. <laughs> yeah, the exactly. They, they love it. Um, the other thing that I liked about it is that it felt like big part of the like John Oliver is a post daily show comedian he came out of the daily show and part of that vein of comedy is that kind of truth to power thing kind of uh crystallized in stephen colbert's 2005 white house correspondence dinner speech where he roasts bush like right in front of his face yeah and that that is the kind of what they're all aspiring to you know when they do those like interviews that are edited for comedy afterwards it's always them confronting people and not letting go and kind of showing up their own hypocrisies and you know, not minding social awkwardness and that kind of thing. Um, and it was nice to see that genuinely employed, you know? Yeah. If you feel a bit uncomfortable and like on the edge of your seat and you feel like a norm is being violated, you know, and it's like they're doing their job. Like, absolutely. So, so good to see. Yeah, it was good. It was good to see. Nice work, Oliver. Nice, Oliver. I look forward to your performance as Zazu in the upcoming Lion King remake. Yeah, he's Can't got big shoes it. to fill. Can he be the Zazu that Rowan Atkinson was? Another sort of beaky British comedian who they like, look like they could be related, quite he, frankly. Yeah. Well, what, is it going to be mocap or is he is he going to use his face? For no, the bird, but or like... uh, yeah, I think it's just indicative of the sort of lack of imagination going into the casting. We're like, we'll just get another British guy who looks a bit like the guy who played him. I mean, yeah. Rowan Atkinson is still working, right? He could just turn up again. But I need a British guy who looks like he actually has a beak to exactly. play this bird. And also looks like the last guy who played the bird. <laughs> there's, only a, there's only a few people who can do that. Is he famous? I don't even know, but he seems perfect. Yeah. Anyway, Sam, what's this uh, podcast about? Glad you asked, Danny. This is a podcast based on a classic video game, all about an alienated white guy who has just had it up to here and goes on a very vulgar and provocative rampage. I hope you aren't a precious little snowflake because some of the stuff we're going to be doing on the podcast may be too hot to handle. It's very violent, okay? Danny is a um, unemployed American average guy. His wife is cheating on him and stuff, and he's just sick of this shit. So he decides to make a quick buck via theft, and then he's going to leave town. He teams up with his uncle Sam, a slovenly con artist turned doomsday cult leader who owes the US government over a million dollars in back taxes. With the help of Uncle Sam's right-hand man, Richie, and a... (laughs) And an army of big-breasted, scantily-clad cult members, Danny devises a plan to hijack a shipment of 2,000 crotchy dolls, a rare sought-after plush toy resembling a giant scrotum. There's also some racist 9-11 stuff in there for good measure. It's very relevant. Powerful. Is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the film Postal, directed by Uwe Boll in about 2007 or something, based on a video game of the same name. But it's not, it's just a podcast in which we talk about and review films. I'm Sam, and joining me, a kind of uh, falling down type guy. He's very relevant to now. You know, there's angry white people, the white backlash. He really signifies the whole thing. Uh, Danny Moran. Hello, thank you. 
Uh, on this week's episode, Sam, you'll be tackling the real-life drama Stronger, in which Jake Gyllenhaal plays a man who is both disabled and has a specific accent. Just give him the Oscar now. Then, we join forces to tackle Blade of the Immortal, the 100th film by Japanese auteur Takeshi Mike, which somehow manages to surpass Logan as 2017's stabbiest film. Plus, we discuss the exciting news that Quentin Tarantino is getting involved with a major franchise, detail the setbacks that have befallen the Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, and wonder if an 18-hour TV show is actually just a film. All of which should give me just enough time to give a quick summation of Takeshi Mike's previous 99 films. I'll of course be starting with his debut, Eyecatch Junction, and I'll be discussing the mise-en-scene in Shinkuju Triad Society, talking about his use of colour in Fudo The Next Generation, detailing the preparation to show Ikawara's stand-up performance in Rainy Dog, and then I might briefly cover the sound design used in Days on No Kukundu before talking about the lighting in Blue Harp, the props in Salimon Kentaro, the production values of The City of Lost Souls, and of course the location work in The Guys from Paradise, which is stunning. Then, depending on the time... I might tackle Family, Family 2, Visitor Q, Issue the Killer, Agitator, and the happiness of the Katakuris as one block, you know, thematically. Yeah. And then I'll just describe the other 84 films. <laughs> might, might, might take a while. <laughs> question flying around film twitter this week is twin peaks the television series a film the, th- the third television series of twin peaks broadcast on television is that a film danny what what, what do you think i don't think so me neither <laughs> i think it's a tv show so the reason we're we're all having to ask uh, this big question which has prompted quite a few um thoughtful twitter threads from various critics some hot debates sight and sound magazine published their uh, list of their favorite films of the year and their second favorite film of the year was twin peaks the return not quite as good a film as get out but better than call me by your name and obviously a lot of people are like why is it on this list it is a television series uh and i guess more interesting than the question of whether it is or is not a film is just like what is it about it that made the list compilers decide to put it on you know i don't think like the wire season one was probably on sight and sounds list of the best films of the year yeah, the quote I've got from this guy who tweeted about it was like, this year, any moving image work could be nominated, including gallery and online pieces. So that, some great vines, perhaps, over that, that vine of that dog hitting that cameraman in the face when he's like jumping for the ball in slow motion. Oh, that's good. That would be my film of the year. That, There's a then... really good video of a, of a, a slow-mo video of a guy who is throwing things to his dog, like throwing different food stuffs into yeah. his dog's mouth, and the dog can never catch it. It's it's like this. It's about a minute and a half long, all slow mo shots of a dog leaping into the air, and he throws it like really directly at its mouth. It should be really easy to catch, and this dog just cannot catch jack shit in its mouth. Would you say it's better than Call Me by Your Name? Of course I would, Danny. <laughs> of course I would say that because it was better. In uh, some of the people who nominated Defense, David Lynch himself has described it as an eighteen-hour film or a film in eighteen parts. I think the actual running length is like sixteen hours something because of adverts and what have you. But I would say that. It is a TV show, and its TV showness is what makes it good. Because it was like one of the weirdest things you'll ever see, and TV will never be as weird as Twin Peaks: The Return was. I don't think one of the episodes is completely fucking batshit crazy. <laughs> but if you saw in the cinema, you can go to the cinema, any art house cinema, and see any manner of weird stuff. 
But the fact it was on TV is what made it interesting. And also, I feel that, to broadly generalize, one of the things that separates TV from film is that TV is more intimate because it's, you're, it's in your, you're invited into your home. You don't go somewhere to see it. And that intimacy is something Twin Peaks kind of trades off. It's all about this kind of juxtaposition of like the cozy suburbia and then all these nasty elements. And when people talk about movies that are cinematic, they often say, oh, you've got to see it on the big screen. But I would say with Twin Peaks, like, you've got to, got see, to see it, it on the, the small screen. You've got to see it on the small screen. Yeah. yeah. So I would say it's definitely a television show. But at the same time, I think uh, David Lynch said it might be the last film thing he does. So maybe Sign Sam will, like, we've got to give this auteur the props he's due or whatever. Yeah. I, I kind of, I feel like uh, it's just an odd thing to get too deep into. Yeah. You know, if you're making a list of the best films, it isn't a judgment about the quality of anything that has been filmed. It's like there's just a set of norms that you associate with films and it's the best one that met those distinctions. If you want to do a separate list of like anything that was recorded by a camera of any kind, what was the best one of the year? Like you can do that. But there doesn't there isn't like implicit in this there's like a hierarchy I yeah feel, it's a of snobbery like, of like TV it, this tv film, is so good it's burst into the film exactly exactly <laughs> yeah it's kind of somehow climbed the ladder and it's like a film now like that's how good it is yeah yeah and it just seems dumb to me just make a list of the best tv shows and put twin peace is the best one or something like that um there was a thread that uh that robbie collin did on twitter where he was giving his two cents and he's basically saying that there's this sort of bleeding in between the two uh mediums and a lot of the film franchising is very episodic in nature and so it's becoming more like tv and sure the, the cinema directors going to tv is making tv more like films or whatever and it's like i you know it's always morass that's just... all fine you know i mean that's all well and good but it really doesn't i mean like film lists are so meaningless and arbitrary anyway that it just seems like silly to have this like deep sort of semantic meditation on what is a tv show what is a film when there's really a very unambiguously as a television show yeah it's not like it was simultaneously released in like cinemas and on televisions or some some kind of weird double category you know it's like it's obvious what it is yeah so but it was it was amusing to see it cause like such a kind of firestorm uh the reason that we're discussing this here in a segment that we normally reserve for correspondence that we receive is that danny tweeted is twin peaks a film discuss hoping to ignite a vast thread uh, of back and forth and heated argument on this topic. He got a reply from Michelle Kleinhaas at Ms. Geek Media. She announces, yes, a film in 18 parts and a brilliant one at that. So the eyes have it. <laughs> I, I went on her Twitter feed and like the previous like 30 things were about Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure if she was the right person to ask. She's a big uh, Twin Peaks fan. Yeah. How did she find our tweet? Did she follow us? I guess she must have hashtagged Twin Peaks or whatever. Just we were the people tweeting about Twin Peaks and the second she was checking, you know, refreshing her browser. All of her tweets and replies were like, yes, Twin Peaks is a film. <laughs> it was all about her like ordering the new series and talking about the special features, which apparently are very good. So, Gotcha. If you're going to watch it, I hear the Blu-ray collection's very nice. Can you imagine watching a film that was like 16 hours long and there was an advert break every 15 minutes? No. You'd be you'd go utterly insane. <laughs> Could you imagine Get Out being released in two minute chunks? Like, <laughs> it'd be rubbish, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would suck. It would suck. All the tension would be dissipated. Yeah. Strange. Strange. Strange people are strange these days. People are strange these days. Yeah, man, you never know. People are very strange these days. I used to know a girl. She had a dozen guys. 
One of them found out about it, beat her up so bad she ended up in a hospital on Guerrero Street. <laughs> what a story, Mark. Yeah, you can say that again. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print. Tarantino, that guy. We were recently discussing that he's locked in a deal with, fuck, I've forgotten who, but somebody to produce his movie made in... Uh, the... Warner Brothers? Or is it Paramount? Paramount? Or is it Sony? Can't fucking remember. <laughs> Might... Yeah, I don't remember. Well, researched. I'll, I'll just drop it in later. So he's obviously making this film with... Sony. And uh, that's due for production next year. Uh, but interesting bit of news broke this week is that he apparently pitched an idea for a Star Trek film and J.J. Abrams, who is and Bad Robot, his company, who are busy making or starting the production on Star Wars Episode uh, Nine, nine uh, have assembled a writer's room to sort of hash out Tarantino's idea. And the report says that if he likes it, he might direct it. So Tarantino, the great auteur of our time, <laughs> potentially his last film will be the third sequel to a reboot of a film franchise based on a TV show. Yeah, massive studio temple. <laughs> studio temple. only a tiny cog in this. His final film was Star machine. Trek Four. Be kind of amazing in a way. That would be incredible. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it will turn out to be like that episode of CSI that had a story credit by Tarantino, and it seemed to have mainly nicked the plot from Kill Bill Volume Two. So I don't know if he actually created the story or if someone just watched the film Kill Bill Volume 2 and like the <laughs> CSI episode but yeah it didn't feel like a Tarantino-y thing at all uh, Price, the more, well the more Tarantino-y this is the the more exciting your project is going to be if it's just like story by Tarantino it could be any old garbage but. yeah yeah exactly he has been on record as being a Star Trek fan and he was on the Nerdist podcast promoting the Hateful Eight and they brought up the Star Trek universe and what he would do in it in a sort of like pub chat kind of way and he said the following I do think what could be done, and especially rather than just coming up with uh, um, hokey space stories, except uh, they might be stuck. They might be stuck doing. I mean, uh, you know, hokey or unhokey, they could be fantastic. Yeah. All right, uh, I think they might be. They might have trapped themselves a little bit by the simple fact that they have to use all the crew now. Right, in all the films they've established it so much that you, you know you need Uhura, you need yep. uh, a Scotty, you need Bones, you need all that stuff going on all the time. Everybody has to ha- be represented in some big story where they all have to deal. Where I actually think it could be cool because some of those episodes are fantastic, and the only thing that limited them was their eight, you know, was their sixties t- uh, uh, budget yep. and. Uh, eight-day shooting schedule. And even having said that, they did a magnificent job. But uh, you could take some of the great uh, classic Star Trek episodes and just easily expand them to 90 minutes or more and really do some really amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, you know, and like, you know, I mean, the obvious one would be sitting on the edge right, of forever, right. but that's what everyone would go to. But, but, yeah. but, but there's a reason why everyone would go to that. <laughs> it's one of the classic stories of all time. Yeah. And one of the great time, time travel stories. However, in thinking about that concept even further, though, I think one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever written was for Next Generation. And I, I'm, and I like Next Generation. I'm, I'm, no way am I the fan or have I seen even remotely as many as uh-huh. I, I had the, the first season. But there was that episode, uh, uh, The Free Enterprise, which is the one where uh, um, 
uh, it was actually written by a fan, frankly, who had been working on the show. And they said, well, you should write an episode. And he wrote this episode that was fantastic. And it was like, I think in the second season, and uh, Denise Crosby's character, Tasha Yar, had already died in the first season. Uh-huh. And Whoopi Goldberg was now on the show. Yep. And uh, they get to a distress they, – they, they're responding to a distress call. Um, from an uh, Enterprise ship that was protecting a Klingon ship that was being attacked by a bunch of Romulans. Yesterday's Enterprise. Yesterday's Enterprise. So that's season three. Yeah. Okay. And I'm back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually think that is one of the great, uh, uh, not only space stories, but the way it dealt with the mythology. Oh, yeah. Of the whole thing. I mean, it was just, and like, that actually could bear yeah. a two-hour Treatment and filling in the blank of filling the Enterprise C and like absolutely. what that was like because the whole thing on that episode that was so cool is uh, they save this ship, but literally do they know by saving this ship? It's actually in a different time period, but they don't know that. So they save it and they bring the, this crew up on board. But what ends up happening is um, because they screwed up with the timeline, uh, everything changes. So I don't know if his idea is just, like, remake. It'd be a bit weird if it's like, my idea is to remake that episode. Only me, Tarantino, could do that. Yeah, the the, the thing that uh, made me slightly less excited about it is, like, the two episodes that he cites, so there's a couple of ones that are, you know, seen as classic episodes, one from the original series and one from The Next Generation. They're both time travel plots, and I don't like... I've decided I basically just don't like time travel stories. I find them annoying. The one he cites is like, which is the definitive Star Trek episode, right? The city on the edge of of forever. forever. I'm already a Star Trek guy, and I was like, it was on Netflix, and I like, I'll watch the best one ever. And I was like, this is the best one? You fucking kidding me? Star Wars is better. And if you think Star Trek's better, you're an idiot. That's my two cents on the matter. It wasn't good. That's I've got to be honest the, with you. The fans collectively nominated the best episode. You it was watched like... it, and therefore you can judge on the entire series and the whole fandom. It's got Joan Collins in it. Ah. Bit, bit strange. I'm like, Joan Collins, what are you doing in Star Trek? She's just in it so for you... one episode. But So that's a, that's a uh, time travel episode, right? Yeah, but I guess you know this whole rebooted franchise began with time travel. So if they're tying it's a bow tying in it. it off, yeah. Yeah, but that's this is that's the that's my misgiving about it is like it always feels like fan fiction and it always um uh has to tie itself in knots with paradoxes and conundrums. Where I just feel like they should get out of the way and let you just tell a story, you know? I mean that's true, but the kind of rebooted franchise is kind of sort of fan fiction to begin with. They're all like they're not even playing the characters, they're playing William Shatner's version of the characters. So it is a is a bit cosplay. Yeah, yeah. But I know, I, I take well, your point. One of the things that we've talked about in the past, in a way, is like this sort of modern phenomenon of uh, things eating themselves so quickly when they like, they're knockoffs of other things and then their sequels feel like knockoffs of themselves, if you yeah, know yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and uh, so I can see them kind of going down, going down that route. I guess if Tarantino, you know, does a polish on the script, Uhura might get some good lines. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, he might just give all the Samuel Jackson lines just to the other black, the only <laughs> black character in Star Trek. Maybe. Because the the characters of not of color were marginalized in Star Trek Beyond. Gotta say. That's true. One of the big problems with those movies is that Star Trek is supposed to be progressive, but it's progressive by the 60s standards, but it's 2017. So there's like this weird, like you were saying, this. It's diverse cast, but it's all about the white people, really. Yeah, it's a diverse right. cast for 1965 or whatever. Yeah. And they was... cast a lot of other people of color, but they're like hidden under thick layers of CGI and alien makeup. Yeah. So I hope they woke it up. 
Uh, Tarantino is a man who has a completely blemishless past when it comes to you. Yes. <laughs> Issues of race. And he's the jaded, uh, furious, <laughs> controversial white man to do that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Brian Singer, the director Brian Singer. He is, or was, making a biopic of Freddie Mercury starring Remy Malik, the guy from um, iRobot. Mr. Robot. <laughs> from Mr. Robot. <laughs> iRobot. I can't... Will Smith. I don't think I can say a single sentence. It doesn't contain some kind of error. Remy Malik talks like this. Yeah. Mr. Robot. Remy Malik. Mr. Robot himself. Is he Mr. Robot? No. Uh, yes, he is, yes, actually. Yes, whatever. He's Mr. <laughs> That's a spoiler, but yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, well... I assume you've seen season one. Yeah, anyway, whatever. He's in some fucking nerdy show where he's a hacker or something, something like that. So he was going to be playing Freddie Mercury in a screen biopic directed by um, Brian Singer. There were reports of uh, some troubles on set. Brian Singer had some uh, health issues and he had some a bit of a dispute with Remy Malek over some aspect of the movie. They had a falling out. And then he just, uh, Singer went missing. Uh, the production was shut down on December the 1st and Singer has not returned to the set. He's been off doing his own thing. Um, And Fox have fired him from the movie. Uh, Fox said in a statement, Brian Singer is no longer the director of Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, Singer denies that he acted unprofessionally. He claims the studio refused to allow him to tend to a a gravely ill parent as well as to his own health. He said, I wanted nothing more than to be able to finish this project and help honor the legacy of Freddie Mercury and Queen. But Fox would not permit me to do so because I needed to temporarily put my health and the health of my loved ones first. Um, so the obvious bit of speculation around this is that it might be somehow tied to uh, the sort of hashtag Me Too post Weinstein fallout stuff because Singer has had rumors swirling around him for years um, around his like mistreatment of young men. Yeah, and, like he would like require like sexual favors from people to to get jobs on. Yeah, and he uh, was the movies, focus yeah. of a documentary called An Open Secret, That's right, which yeah. detailed about these sort of illicit kind of sex parties where underage men were provided for those of enough influence and power. And apparently Brian Singer was a regular attendee. And yeah, so the news first broke that he was stepping away for like illness. And everyone's like, this is a bit interesting. It's interesting timing. And now this become, you know, he was fired. And obviously, you know, he obviously wasn't acting professional for many months, it seems. But... It's all a bit suspicious. Well, if it is because there have been some uh, sexual assault allegations that were bubbling over and about to burst against him, it's kind of fucked up that they, he would be allowed to just simply quit the film and that that would quiet them down. I mean, we, we'll see how it plays out, but it would be shitty, you know? Yeah. If all he, if all he had to do was step away and there was some kind of deal cut where he would be rescued from exposure uh, by uh, abandoning his work on the movie. But I don't know, maybe it is just that he got really angry on set. I mean, and was ill. <laughs> but he, he's like, he's made so many like big studio movies before. It's not like Josh Trank. I was in one. Before. You were in one. Yeah, I didn't see any illicit behavior when I was on set for one day. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> for the 15 seconds you spent peering at him from a distance he wasn't, yeah he wasn't for the climactic anyone. uh well i've no i don't watch my own work so what i believe was pitched to me as the climactic moment of the film uh, but i don't know i've not seen it <laughs> some giants came in or something reacting to giants on like but like uh what's it called tennis balls on sticks yeah the eye lines and then um so nicholas holt who wasn't there on set but yeah. this double came in and he had like a magic this crown. Is the, this is that... the director video sequel to Valkyrie, <laughs> where the guy uh, hires giants to kill Hitler. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and then like at the end, he's got like an amulet or something that stops the giants. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But I don't give know. Us, give us some more highlights of your, of, your, of your time as an extra on Jack the Giant Killer. It was very well paid. Yeah. Yeah. What did you get? Got like 120 quid for the day. Very nice. And I was just sitting around, just me and Will Hunter just sitting around for most of the day. Did you got get a, a cool, cool costume. Got a cool costume. A uh, little, little insider secret. Though I'm holding my uh, <laughs> the handle of my sword, yeah. it didn't actually come out. It's just like a scabbard and like the handle. There's no actual sword. I couldn't pull it out. Right. So you're, so ready, I, you're I looked, ready to pull the sword. So I had to play it yeah. as if I was about to take it out. Uh-huh. But secretly, I couldn't do that. But hopefully, my performance just sold that. That's something I was might do. Do you think it convinced? You know. Well, I don't know. I don't watch my own work back. Well, in the mo- in the moment, I felt very. A lot of actors don't watch their own movies, it's you know. Too silly. What do you mean it's too silly? I'm talking about my processor. Brian Singer's. It was very much like extras, like the Ricky Gervais show, <laughs> where like all the guys, like, because we just like, won this competition. Like, Will Hunter's mum won like being extra for a day thing at a raffle or something. But like all the people who are professionals were a bit like I'm just gonna get my face out there. I was like, get your face out there. I want this crown scene <laughs> for two seconds. It's like you're deluded, mate. Like some big shot producers gonna yeah. be watching Jack the Giant Killer and it's like, get me that man. Yeah, I don't want to like row there yeah, holding exactly. his, the handle of his sword. I don't want to denigrate your acting ability, but literally I can do it. You know. Like I've just been shipped on. There's a reason they give these away as prizes, you know. Yeah, it's, you don't need... yeah. It's a bit of a slap in the face to do that to the professional extras, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, so well, Brian's... the main the main lesson here is that neither of us care that much about this <laughs> biopic. I mean, I wasn't really following it that closely. It's also it's written by Anthony McCartan, the writer of The Fear of Everything, which is terrible, and The Darkest Hours, the upcoming Churchill thing. So I imagine Schmaltz. Schmaltzy. Schmaltzy. Well, we don't even know. I mean, presumably they'll just find someone else. Maybe Ron Howard can do it after he's finished with episode eight. Yeah, but I mean, there's only two weeks left on production. So, like, it'll be a film, like, 90% shot by a potentially disgraced director. Yeah. Get Joss Whedon <laughs> and uh, Ron Howard and Ridley Scott. <laughs> CGI, CGI that moustache out. <laughs> 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 the Ray Malik's... <laughs> this is another upper lip problem. Yeah, Ray Malik, he's already uh, shaved it off for a different film. They've got to get him back to do some reshoots. And this, the studio will not allow him to regrow it. <laughs> so you got to do an unconvincing CGI moustache. Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are going to help you out. you got to come prepared, try not to rush. Speak directly into the mic. Um, Don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. Okay, Stronger. This is the uh, new film from David Gordon Green. He's had quite a long career. He made a bunch of uh, indie dramas, and then he moved sideways into comedy and made Your Highness and Pineapple Express. And then he moved back into, well, he's done a sort of mix of uh, comedy and drama since then. You could probably cite more of his films. Did that movie Joe, right? Joe. Manglehorn. He did that one. Manglehorn. You remember remember (laughs) Manglehorn? Prince Avalanche is pretty good. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, this is his new film. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal as Jeff 
Bowman, who's a real chap. Um, he was one of the victims of the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing in which he lost his legs. And uh, he then wrote a book which has been adapted into this film. And it also stars Tatiana Maslany, who plays Jake Gyllenhaal's on and off girlfriend, Miranda Richardson, who plays his mother. And it's all about him suffering this uh, uh, catastrophe and then coming to terms with his um, uh, life afterwards. Here's a clip. Should have seen the sign I made for you. What did they? I like 3D letters and everything. I thought this film was pretty good on the whole. I enjoyed it a lot. It is basically doing two stories at once. That was my kind of, that's my hot take on this film, uh, which is what I kind of decided afterwards. Um, on the one hand, it is a relatively straightforward kind of templated triumph over adversity type film where a good man suffers this, he's the victim of this appalling crime and he has to battle against the physical and psychological consequences of it. And eventually, you know, he overcomes the obstacles and it's this sort of feel-good tale of, uh, of that happening. And, but there's also a kind of secondary or alternative story going on which examines the social and personal complexity of traumas like this a bit more closely and how these events resist um, simple reassuring narratives. And it does a good job of exploring the gap between the media's picture of uh, the fallout from such disasters and the personal experience of it because part of the movie examines the way in which he is kind of co-opted by Boston as a hero and the, the title refers to this slogan Boston Strong which is uh, used a lot so right like you want to no no but like he was like a subject of like a viral photo I remember right like rough I think that's how he well there's some video footage of him like being rescued I believe yeah 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 um but he he ends up being this kind of symbol of the recovery of the community generally right okay. he comes out of hospital and there's like presents and stuff waiting for him and cre cheering crowds everywhere and he gets all these like letters and posters and stuff and uh there's a sort of pivotal scene in the film where he is taken out to uh wave a flag around in the middle of an ice hockey game um as this kind of symbol of resilience but at the same time uh, his own the way he's dealing with it is not sort of matching that like outward impression and he right, just finds that like a massive burden on him um and it's you know about how uh the fact that he suffered this didn't suddenly make him like a perfect person he still has all the flaws that, that he did before and it's just like extra shit to deal with and it's you know a nightmare for him and he's, of course you know doesn't do everything perfectly and i thought all of that stuff that slightly like darker stuff is really well done. I mean, you know, it's based on the guy's like actual story of what happened, and there's a lot of detail in it that feels extremely real. It feels very like psychologically uh, bad. You know, it's very sort of raw, and there's stuff in there where it's like, you know, they must have got the guy to sign off on this because uh, it, you would never put it in if you were just doing the like a purely fictional account. Right. Yeah. Okay. And I actually, well, I actually thought when I was watching the movie, there were some scenes in it when I was like, this is probably based on a real thing. 
but has been um you know lightly fictionalized just so you don't have to put someone under the spotlight that way but no it is really him you know like wow okay they sort of show his picture at the end of the, of the movie and stuff um so it's quite a brave kind of testament in a way and there's a kind of underlying uh, social message that it sort of suggests about the cruelty of instrumentalizing a person in this way and the way that um and sort of putting that message above uh, their own needs and it's almost a kind of plea for like greater understanding you know when these things happen or like the way that you handle people yeah um, and it's also quite a touching portrait of how hard it is for the family around him like his mother and particularly his sort of on-off girlfriend um who you know they're not together when it happens but she kind of becomes his carer and that's a whole of course right changes the the dynamic yeah exactly and that becomes sort of a whole thing um uh but the my sort of misgiving about it is that because i had bought so much into the psychological realism of this portrayal you know and it seems so true to me that when it has a more conventional kind of conclusion it rings a little bit hollow and it's a victim of its own success in a way because i felt like i wasn't signaled throughout the film that i was watching that kind of a movie i thought i was watching like a different harder you know less compromising film that would have a that would like be ambiguous and leave you with questions and it has that kind of sentimental reassurance right okay. it, which is almost like a reward for having you know put <laughs> up with the the harder stuff but it slightly undercuts it because um by making it into that sort of a narrative it like the rest of the movie is kind of critiquing that kind of narrative as exploitative if you see what i mean yeah yeah it's like the perspective switches at the end to the perspective of like you know the media and the community saying like you know we can all band together and this is a terrible thing but you know we'll all move on and if you see what i mean yeah, it's yeah. like you know that's not what it's like to actually live through it um and I can completely understand why they did that, and maybe the movie would never have been made if it was like, <laughs> you know, sure, sure, if it if it uh, if it didn't um, have that kind of an angle. But you know, uh, the performances are very good. Jay Jenner Hall does a very good job. He's a very charming guy. I think he does a good job of convincing as this like completely average dude in Boston who just has like some shitty job. You know, um, he's a very unvain actor. You know, he really throws himself into these types of roles, and it doesn't seem very. Uh, doesn't have that kind of uh, pleading worthiness that some real consideration just, yeah exactly that's, yeah um and tatiana masani is really really excellent as uh, his girlfriend as well i don't think i'd seen her before and anything but but she's super good um it's pretty like unflashily directed movie but it's just you know it does does the job does the job yeah and yeah so overall i kind of liked it and i hope this review hasn't been too spoilerific by talking about the structure but i don't know how else to talk about the movie because no no it's all yeah what? You had a girlfriend. <laughs> You've ruined it for me. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. Let's join Share between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak? Or do they interrupt each other? The light is on. The guys are in. So let the chat And now a serious film about real things. <laughs> Blade of the Immortal. The 100th film by Takeshi Mike. Previously directed the film Audition. 
that's the only one I've seen. He's the only director where I've only seen 2% of their filmography. Is there a bit of audition where, where like, a woman puts a needle into a guy's dick or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think so. Yeah, she makes that noise. Have you not seen Itchy the Killer? Nope. Oh, is that also him? Yeah. No, it's, that's really Bought Itchy the Killer on DVD for one of my friends once. Do you, do you watch it? it? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah, I did, but that was all just made-up bullshit just to fill the time. So, uh, it is based on the first two parts of an epic four-part manga series of the same name written by Hiroki Samura, and the plot is as follows. So, Curse of Immortality, a highly skilled samurai in feudal Japan, promises to help a young woman avenge the death of her parents. Their mission leads them into a bloody battle with a ruthless warrior and his band of master swordsmen. Here is a clip. And that clip gives you a good indication (laughs) of what the movie's like. There's a lot of that going on. And I would say it kind of delivered as a uh, kind of schlocky, fun, kind of rollicking good time. Yeah, they, there's a lot of stabbing. You know, they it, do they do the stuff. Don't they, they do this stuff. They do that. They run about. They stab each other. Limbs are lopped off and stuff like that. And I think the most successful element of it, and the thing that was most entertaining, is this kind of supernatural element where he's got these immortal blood worms inside him, so he can sort of reattach his limbs, like kind of Wolverine style. And it kind of soups up a very standard samurai story because the whole thing about grumpy old warrior and young person, you know, know, it's basically he's like true grit is that plot. Yeah. Um, But the concept of him being immortal just takes that concept like to his logical extreme. So instead of being like this old guy, he's like literally hundreds of years old. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, he's like lived the lifespan of like 10 grumpy guys. So he's even more, you know, grumpy than usual. And also this whole thing about him being able to, you know, withstand all manner of injuries just leads to like very winning, like black humor. Whereas like often the thing in movies where like, you know, the hero having, you know, been having the being of a lifetime still managed to get himself up. But with him, he's like literally like lost limbs, blood's coming out of him. He's like collapsing from building to building, just about getting by. Yeah, it's one of the funny things about the movie is that he's kind of this immortal badass swordsman, but he also gets his like ass handed to him in every encounter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So all that stuff is fine. I mean, like, it's a completely stupid movie, but I kind of was into it. It's it, like maybe perhaps a bit over long. Yeah, I did. Fi- I found it a bit too long. And it's, yeah, it has it has quite a fun uh, rotating cast of colorful characters. He, he obviously hacks his way through about eight million other uh, people in the film. And a lot of them, they all look like they've almost been designed like video game characters or something. Yeah, so I think you can maybe identify the, uh... very easily out of a... Yeah, lineup, yeah. You know, the fact that it's based on a manga words. is not kind of surprising in a no, way. No, not because... at all. They all look like they have like distinctive silhouettes and you know the different shapes and sizes, and they all got like colorful aspects to them. And they're you know that's all quite good fun. I do, I did feel a little bit like the hacking and slashing has somewhat diminishing <laughs> returns, and the final bloodbath is just absurd. And it's like, I, I think that the the setup for it because there's so many people, I was like they're gonna have to find a different way. It's like no, it's gonna be. He can't just stab all. Yeah, he can. That's that's all that's gonna happen. It's gonna go on for like a million years, and yeah. it's like it. It was kind of boring, but it was also like almost like a joke that goes on too long and becomes funny again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I would kind of describe it as 
like a really well-made martial arts film slashed of that sort of Black Knight sequence from the Holy Grail. Yeah. And that's basically it. That is pretty much it, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, as a sort of like fun time of the movie, it's like, like you know, it's not really much to say about it, really. It's a film where a guy's going to kill a bunch of people and he does. Yeah, can't say I took detailed notes on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we saw the London Film Festival and it's the sort of film you want to see at a film festival, you know? Yeah, you don't have to think at all. You don't just think sit it's in. not like this, like... You know, I watched this, like, uh, two-hour documentary about, like, a retirement home in Istanbul, and it wasn't like that. <laughs> let's, just, <laughs> let's just say it wasn't like that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's the perfect... <laughs> they don't put that on the, on the poster. <laughs> I saw a two-hour film about a retirement home, and it wasn't like that. So I think you should use that to how you describe all films from now on. <laughs> What film couldn't you say that about? <laughs> Apart from another film set in a retirement home, perhaps. And it was like that. <laughs> when Zach heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? When John Cusack made a mistake for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? When Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sam, thanks so much for being here, making this podcast with me. You too, Katie. Thanks for pressing record. Thanks, Katie. I mean, that really downplayed your involvement. (laughs) It's very, very dismissive. Real and all the unseen work you do behind the scenes. Uh, thank you for joining us next week we'll be reviewing well there's not much out I might review The Disaster Artist because Star Wars is out next week so every other film is you know giving it a wide berth holy shit Um, I didn't even clock that it's out The Last Jedi oh come on The Porgs aren't you excited Um, so we might review I can't believe we didn't spend hours talking about the first three words that Luke Skywalker says being The Last Jedi I saw that it's been revealed was it who are you we could I don't know that might make sense <laughs> maybe it's just like I am sleepy <laughs> Bernie Bernie would have we could have given a good <laughs> I think it's the last Jedi <laughs> last Jedi <laughs> me <laughs> me yeah I guess so um, who are you is that what it is it that makes sense widely to be his first words but that now seems unlikely it's unlikely. That's, f- that's fake news. All right, d- guys, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm glad we didn't spend 45 minutes talking about that. And, yeah, until until next time. Goodbye. goodbye. Say, say goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jake Gyllenhaal, um, and uh, I'm here today with Jeff Bowman, who I had the honor of playing in the movie Stronger that comes out September 22nd. Jeff uh, survived the Boston Marathon bombings and uh, stories about him and his journey through that whole process. It's an honor to be sitting here with you today to ask you a few questions about the movie. I am really excited about it, and uh, I hope you are too. Yeah. Do you want to start with your questions first, or do you want to start with mine? I could start off. Okay. You know uh, Fan Wilder, right? Ryan Reynolds? Yeah. I, I really wanted him to play me. I was just wondering why he didn't. Um, he would have been better, I think. 
So what's your favorite all-time Boston movie besides Steel Magnolias? God, Good Will Hunting. Did you know? Um, what? That's a great movie. What? Yeah, but I mean, it's like, what's your favorite That's Boston movie? That's the best movie? one. What, The Departed? Could have said The Departed. That's Wahlberg's best movie. Another question. Speaking of Wahlberg, have you ever actually eaten a Wahlburger? And if so, what happened to you two or three hours later? If you lost your legs in real life, do you think Taylor Swift would write a song about it? For, like for a, me like a, or about it? No, like for you, like a country song. She sort of moved more into pop now. You ever thought about doing a good movie? Like Fast and the Furious? Because they can like drive tanks and shoot and drive fast cars. <laughs> I mean, you shot yourself in one of your movies. Yeah, you fell I, on your I, own I, gun. I what was that movie? You fell on your own gun? Nocturnal Animals. Nocturnal. Yeah. <laughs> Slept on own gun and shot yourself. <laughs> I didn't write it. it so you're really a runner. I know you run a lot to stay in shape. You ever think about running the Boston Marathon? I would actually, I'd love to run it. I've never run a marathon before. You think you could do it without your pack of bodyguards? I don't have any Next bodyguards. Question. While you were shooting in Boston, what was the best meal you had flown in from LA? Well, I didn't have any. Uh, my producer's telling me we're out of time. <laughs> deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.